This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. It's very difficult to understand history if you have no sense of geography. Geography influences, shapes, and even dictates human actions and events which make up history. While transformation of the geography of the land takes a long time, centuries, even millennia, the geopolitical dynamics within a land can change rapidly within days, weeks, months, years, or decades. Today we're going to discuss the relationship between geography and history within the Gospels. Historically, New Testament studies, especially those dealing with the Gospels, have not taken the geography of the land of Israel very seriously. Oh, New Testament introductions will have the obligatory maps and the brief discussion about the geography of the New Testament world. But few take seriously the relationship between geography and history, especially the shifting geopolitical realities within the first century. Students in universities and seminaries, even at the graduate level, receive little more than a cursory introduction to the geography and the geopolitical realities of the land of Israel in the first century. Now, why is that? The Gospels contain geographic detail. Perhaps it's because New Testament scholarship tends to base its historical reconstruction of the life of Jesus upon modern theories regarding the literary relationships of the Gospels. These tend to take precedent over paying careful attention to the geography reflected within the four lives of Jesus that we call the Gospels. This often leads to a rather monotone treatment of the geography within the Gospels. 
The interrelationship between geography and history is often overlooked, and the potential for geography to serve as a witness to the antiquity of the sources of the Gospels is routinely missed. Many scholars and commentaries routinely repeat the statement that Luke did not know the geography of the land of Israel, yet within his gospel in the book of Acts, he consistently reflects a nuanced handling of the shifting geopolitical realities of the land of Israel in the first century prior to the Jewish revolt in AD 66. So is this scholarly refrain accurate? Moreover, many who try to address the geography of the New Testament do so from the standpoint of being trained in the discipline of Old Testament historical geography, which as a discipline has tended to pay more attention to the interplay between text and land within New Testament studies. Moreover, many who try to address the geography of the New Testament do so from the standpoint of being trained in the discipline of Old Testament historical geography, which as a discipline has tended to pay more attention to the interplay between text and land than within New Testament studies. Yet the same monotone presentation of the land and its history emerges. It is forgotten that the world of the New Testament is not the world of the Old Testament. And as the bard from Hibbing, Minnesota has taught us, the times, they are a-changing. Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. At the outset, we need to clarify some basic assumptions among gospel scholars. Most gospel scholars believe that Mark was the earliest gospel written, dating its writing to shortly after Jerusalem's destruction in A.D. 70. Mark then served as the main narrative source for both Matthew and Luke. In addition to Mark, Matthew and Luke were said to have used a hypothetical source, usually defined as a saying source, which is called Q. This explains the common sayings material found in Matthew and Luke, which are not found in Mark. So the theory goes that Mark wrote first, then Matthew and Luke used Mark and Q plus some other material that was unique to themselves, and this is what they used to compose their Gospels. In this theory, Matthew and Luke did not know each other. They wrote independently from one another using Mark and Q. Now, is everyone with me thus far? This is the theory that most scholars use to explain the literary relationships of the Synoptic Gospels that being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel is something different. We should add that John's Gospel contains a lot of geographic detail, much that overlaps with Luke, but John also has a number of anachronisms, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. When Matthew and Luke have a shared story with Mark, we refer to this story as being in what is called triple tradition. And in triple tradition stories, Mark is supposed to be the source for Matthew and Luke. Thus, wherever Matthew and Luke have any differences from Mark, scholars identify these differences as Matthean and Lucan literary tendencies. Now, you may be asking, what in the world does this have to do with talking about the geography of the Gospels? The answer is everything. The basis, then, for geographic reality and accuracy within Gospel studies becomes the Gospel of Mark. When Luke or Matthew deviate from Mark, the assumption is that the quality of their geographic accuracy decreases. 
or at least that's the usual assumption. Thus, a modern theory, which explains the origin and composition of the Gospels, often becomes a tool for evaluating the geographic accuracy of the Gospels. Or, due to scholars viewing the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, through the prism of this modern literary theory, they tend to overlook or at least are blinded to the historical geographic nuance found within the Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospels. This becomes even more clear when we evaluate the Gospels individually against the shifting geopolitical realities of the land of Israel in the first century. But to do this requires that one know the land in a boots-on-the-ground kind of way and to know the shifting realities of the history of the land of Israel in the first century. Now, before we recap this history, we need to say a word about anachronism. Ancient writers utilized geography to tell their stories and relate their histories. For them, it mattered to their overall story. And when they wrote, especially if they wrote from a later period, they often reflect the geographic and geopolitical realities of their day and age, not necessarily those from the time of the story that they tell. This is what we refer to as anachronism. For example, the writer of Genesis telling his stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mentions the land of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines did not reside on the southern coast of the land of Israel during the age of the patriarchs. Rather, this description of that territory as the land of the Philistines reflects the geopolitical reality of the author's day. When approaching the Gospels, this has to be kept in mind. So now let's summarize the history of this period. From 142 to 63 BC, the land of Israel was an autonomous state under the control of the Hasmonean priest kings. In 63 BC, the Roman army of Pompey the Great entered Jerusalem, and Rome began to take a more active role in Judean politics. This should be viewed against the backdrop of the eastward expansion of the Roman Republic. Pompey and his successor, Gabinius, began the dismantling of the Hasmonean state, which included making the land of Israel a client kingdom of Rome. Now, for a time, Rome permitted this client kingdom to function under the Hasmoneans, but they stripped the Hasmoneans of the title king and only left them being high priests. Territories that were acquired by the Hasmoneans in their expansion which were settled primarily by non-Jews, were removed from the control of the Judean client kingdom. Rome permitted Judea to remain a client kingdom for the next 70 years, but it used the land, its property, its resources. They exploited it for Rome's goals. For example, Crassus, the proconsul of Syria, robbed the Jerusalem temple treasury to fund his Parthian campaign in 55 BC. Judea found itself caught in the political intrigue and fighting that accompanied the final years of the Roman Republic. When Cassius, one of the assassins of Julius Caesar, yes, that honorable man, demanded 700 talents for his war efforts against Caesar's successor, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus, a young regional governor of the Galilee by the name of Herod produced 100 talents first, winning Cassius's esteem. Eventually, Herod sails to Rome and under the benefactorship of Mark Antony was proclaimed king of Judea by the Roman Senate. Judea had a new king, a non-Hasmonean, over its client kingdom, and this king was loyal to Rome. 
The subsequent civil war between Octavian, later named Augustus, and Antony and Cleopatra, that's Liz Taylor for our older listeners, found Herod in the land of Israel caught in the middle. After Augustus's victory at Actium, Herod stabilized his power, built extensively within the land of Israel and outside of it, and eventually he dies in 4 BC. His kingdom was divided among his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. All wanted their father's title king in his land, but Augustus did not feel that any of them were fit for either. Archelaus received the title ethnarch, which means a ruler of the people, and the lands of Judea, which is the territory around Jerusalem, Idumea, which was the southern Judean hills around Hebron, down into the biblical Negev, which is the Beersheba Basin, and Samaria, which was in the center of the central hill country around Mount Gerizim. Antipas received the land of Galilee, which encompassed the land north of the Jezreel Valley. Please note, the Jezreel Valley was not a part of Antipas's Galilee. We'll come back to this point a little bit later. West towards the Mediterranean coast, but not including Ptolemais and the land surrounding it. East to the Jordan River and the Lake of Galilee. It included what the Jewish historian Josephus terms as Upper and Lower Galilee. Antipas was also given the territory of Perea, which runs on the east bank of the Jordan River, south of the Lake of Galilee, until the northeastern shore of the Dead Sea. Antipas, who is responsible for the death of John the Baptist, received the title Tetrarch, which means a ruler of a territory. His brother Philip also bore the title Tetrarch and received the lands from the northeastern part of the Lake of Galilee, north into the Golan Heights today, towards the foothills of Mount Hermon. This was the division of Herod's kingdom among his sons. Now, in AD 6, at the request of the Jews, Rome removed Archelaus from being ethnarch and annexed his lands, bringing them under the direct rule of Roman governors who were called prefects. Of course, the most famous being Pontius Pilate. These prefects lived at Herod's port city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Philip and Antipas continued to rule their territories with a certain degree of autonomy, They, as well as the Roman governor of Judea, were under the control of the Roman governor of Syria. Philip died around AD 33 to 34. Antipas is actually going to be exiled by the Roman emperor Caligula in AD 39. If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible book club and Bible study is a virtual on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the book club and Bible study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert 
or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low stress, no fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. At this time, the lands that had previously belonged to Herod the Great were granted to Herod's grandson, Agrippa I. Agrippa I had grown up in Rome and was known both to the Roman emperors Caligula and Claudius. He was given the kingdom of his grandfather as well as the title king. He ruled from AD 41 until his death in AD 44, which both the book of Acts and Josephus relate. After Agrippa I's death, all of his lands were annexed to Rome, and now the entire land of Judea, the land of Israel, was brought under direct Roman rule in the form of Roman procurators, who also resided at Caesarea. Herod's great-grandson, Agrippa II, was the last of the Herodian dynasty to rule, but he ruled lands outside of the land of Israel, namely the territory of Abilene, which had previously been ruled by Lysanias. This is the Herod that Paul stood in front of in the book of Acts when Paul was in Caesarea. Under the Roman procurators, the first Jewish revolt broke out in AD 66. It culminated in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and it came to an end in AD 73 with the fall of Masada. After the revolt, Rome ruled and administered the land of Israel, which the Romans referred to as the Provincia of Judea. Are you still with me? I hope so. Even if you didn't catch all the names and dates, I hope you saw how the geopolitics of the land of Israel shifted throughout the first century. The geopolitical reality of the land during the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus were not the same as they were even in the 40s. Nor were those the same as what existed prior to the Jewish revolt or after it. The Gospels bear witness to the life of Jesus who lived in the first third of the first century. How well they preserve the geopolitical realities of that period tells us about the quality and the antiquity of their sources. Do the Gospels reflect the geopolitics during Jesus' life? Or do they reflect later anachronism? To put it another way, historical geography can provide a means for us to analyze whether or not the standard view of the composition history of the Gospels stands up to scrutiny. Now, there's a lot to this, but we only want to focus on five examples that demonstrate that Luke's Gospel was not ignorant of the geographic realities of the land of Israel. He consistently portrays the geopolitical realities during the time of Jesus's ministry, and we can also say they prove that Mark was not his source. Let's begin with the simplest example, the Lake of Galilee. Luke consistently refers to the Lake of Galilee as a lake, limne in Greek, which means a fresh water body of water. Matthew and Mark use the Greek word thalassa, which refers to a salt water body of water. Of course, the Lake of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Moreover, Luke refers to it as the Lake of Gennesar, 
which Josephus tells us was the name that it was given to it by the locals. One would expect, if Mark were Luke's source, that Luke would have followed his use of the word see, thalassa, but he doesn't, not once in his gospel. Furthermore, his use of the term lake actually reflects the physical reality of the land. Second, in Luke chapter 17, Luke describes Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem and states that he passed, quote, between Samaria and Galilee. Now, many scholars point to this as evidence that Luke did not know the geography of the land. Why? The region of Samaria encompassed the central portion of the central hill country, and it terminated in the north at the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley provides an east-west opening through the spine of the hill country. Now, scholars assume that Luke's description of Jesus going between Samaria and Galilee is incorrect because they assume that Samaria butted up against Galilee. But, and it's a big but, the Jezreel Valley was not considered part of the Galilee in Jesus' day. Josephus makes this clear. I told you we'd come back to this. Moreover, the eastern neck of the Jezreel Valley is another smaller valley known as the Harod Valley, which was part of the land belonging to Beit Shan, an independent non-Jewish city, neither belonging to Samaria or Galilee. A pilgrim traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem would come to the Jezreel Valley, go east through the Harod Valley, cross the Jordan River south of Beit Shan, continue south through Perea before crossing the Jordan River opposite Jericho and ascending to Jerusalem. So yes, one went between Samaria and Galilee by passing through the Jezreel and the Harod Valleys. Luke got it right. The third example is something not that Luke has, but something that Luke does not have that appears in Matthew and Mark, the Decapolis. Steve Notley has already drawn attention to this, but to summarize the argument here, the usual definition of this term, Decapolis, is that it was a league of 10 cities, hence the name Decapolis, which lay east of the Lake of Galilee in the Transjordan. Now, this is assumed to have been organized by Pompey the Great in 63 BC. As he was dismantling the Hasmonean kingdom, he formed this league of cities. That's the assumption. That's what's usually said and what's usually taught. The only problem with this is that the ancient sources, literary, archaeological, and numismatic, dealing with coins, do not bear this up. The Hasmonean expansion brought some of these non-Jewish cities into the Hasmonean kingdom. Pompey returned them to their independent status when he dismantled the Hasmonean kingdom. Some of these cities commemorated his action on their city coins. Now remember something, coins served as propaganda within the ancient world. One could argue they still do, but that's a whole other conversation. But these city coins never mention the establishment of a league of cities named the Decapolis by Pompey. Now, this is something you would expect that they would have done. There are also no inscriptions in these cities from the first century that announce their belonging to such a political confederation. Moreover, Augustus 
gave two of these cities to Herod the Great as part of his kingdom. Now, upon his death, they revert to being free and independent. But this seems odd that he would have given them to Herod if they belonged to this confederation of free Greek cities. Neither Josephus nor Strabo, who both describe the history and the geography of the region extensively, ever mention Pompey establishing a league of the Decapolis. The first to mention such a description was Pliny the Elder. Yet Pliny was, in part, how should we say, an armchair geographer, meaning he did his work in a library, not by traveling to the lands that he discussed. Moreover, in his description of the Decapolis, he speaks about disagreements between sources regarding the lists of these cities, and this tells us that he's relying on others' descriptions that were not in agreement. Also, while the Decapolis means 10 cities, none of the ancient sources agree as to what cities made up the 10. Some even give more than 10 cities. Josephus mentions that a delegation from the Decapolis of Syria petitioned the Roman general Vespasian against the Jewish rebels during the First Jewish Revolt. During the Hellenistic and Roman periods, tensions always existed between Jews in Galilee and the Golan and the non-Jews living in the area. The earliest sources that mention the Decapolis all date to after the First Jewish Revolt. And they also always mention the region of the Decapolis. In other words, the land surrounding these cities, not the cities themselves. It seems then that the Decapolis developed as a result of the Jewish revolt against Rome. These non-Jewish cities bordered the Jewish regions and came to identify themselves as separate from the Jewish regions that revolted against Rome. In other words, it is a post-70 reality. There was no Decapolis in Jesus' day. And guess what? It never appears in Luke. Yet it does in Mark and Matthew. Like the land of the Philistines in Genesis, Mark and Matthew's use of Decapolis is an anachronism reflecting their post-70 reality, something that was avoided by Luke. Fourth example, Luke begins his narrative of the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus by outlining the geopolitical realities of the land. Quote, in the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias the ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke alone of the gospel writers does this. He correctly calls Antipas a tetrarch and not a king like Mark does. Throughout his gospel, these geopolitics are maintained. Luke is the only gospel that has Pilate sending Jesus to Antipas because Jesus was a Galilean and therefore fell under Antipas's jurisdiction. Not only in his gospel, but in the book of Acts as well, he continues to accurately reflect these geopolitical realities and nuances. Scholars assume them at times when approaching the other gospels, but the other gospels do not frame Jesus's life within the geopolitics of his day the way that Luke does. Fifth example. In Luke 19, as Jesus leaves Jericho, Beginning his ascent to Jerusalem, he tells those following him a story about a man who went off to receive a kingdom, but his subjects did not want him to be their king. 
Therefore, they sent a delegation protesting him becoming king. Everyone knew the story. This is the story of Archelaus, the son of Herod. And Luke has Jesus telling the story as he leaves the city of Jericho. Now, during the life of Jesus, on the road out of Jericho, ascending towards Jerusalem, one passed by the winter palace of Herod the Great. This magnificent palace was the location where Herod died, according to Josephus. An earthquake destroys the palace in A.D. 48, and it was never rebuilt. The odds of Luke randomly placing Jesus on the road, passing by Herod's palace, telling the story of Herod's son Archelaus in that very location are astronomical. He had to receive it from a source, a source that was not the Gospel of Mark. Oh, and by the way, this source had to predate A.D. 48 when the earthquake destroyed Herod's palace. This places at least some of Luke's non-Markan sources of the life of Jesus within the 40s. That's early. I know I said I would give you five, but because you've stayed with me, I'm going to add a sixth. In Luke's gospel, in the early part of Acts, Luke never mentions the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Scholars have already noted his Greek refers to Jesus as well as Peter and John being taken into the chamber of the Sanhedrin but he never mentions the Jewish governing body of the Sanhedrin. Also notice that neither does John. It seems that historically there wasn't a Sanhedrin during Jesus's day. Herod the Great disbanded the body, and Josephus does not really mention it again until the time of the Roman procurators. That means around the 50s and 60s of the first century. Perhaps either Agrippa I or the Roman procurators reconvened the body, but during the days of Pilate and Antipas, there was no Sanhedrin. Notice also that Luke never mentions the body of the Sanhedrin, even in his version of Jesus' statement about his disciples being brought before rulers. In the latter part of Acts, however, Paul does stand in front of the Sanhedrin, but this is during the time of the Roman procurators. Of course, both Matthew and Mark place Jesus as standing in front of the Sanhedrin, but once again, like with the Decapolis, this reflects an anachronism of these two evangelists who tell their story through the lens of the reality of their day. There are a number of other examples that we could bring, but this sampling is sufficient to counter the scholarly claim that Luke didn't know the geography of the land of Israel. He did. He also consistently reflects the geopolitical nuances of the land of Israel in the first century within his work, Luke-Acts. Moreover, if Luke used Mark as his narrative source, we have to assume that Luke repeatedly corrected Mark's geography and geopolitics, which, if he did, then his ignorance of the land is hard to maintain. The simpler explanation, however, is that Luke did not use Mark as a source of his gospel, that he based his life of Jesus upon sources that date to the first two decades after the death of Jesus. It's very difficult to understand history if you have no sense of geography, and it's very difficult to assess geography with no sense of the land and its history. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITV podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Turnage. See you next time. 
We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about Biblical Expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.